I already see what your argument is gonna be. Great, then you should know that you're in the wrong position. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah, was so... that was that for you. Your time in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Flick Lab. That's right. It's a different voice hosting today. It's me, Zach, the resident American living in Boston. We are a bi-weekly podcast focusing mostly on international cinema, and we do have a great one for you today. Joining me, as always, Kari. Hi. <laughs> and also Henrik. Bojkawawo. <laughs> Also, very special guest joining us today from Portugal. Please welcome Pedro, who runs the YouTube channel Plan Sequence, which is excellent, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. Pedro, welcome to the Flick Lab. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be in here. Sure. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, sort of where you stand in terms of uh, film studies and how you became a, a film nerd worthy of coming into the Flick Lab. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I've been a passionate fan of cinema for a long time. My my father used to take me to the movies ever since I was very, very young. He he was, he still is a very passionate fan of cinema as well. And I've been in love with movies for uh, the greatest part of my life. And, you know, I was studying a very different subject at university. I was doing engineering and I didn't quite like it. And at some point I had to, to follow my, my dream, which was to, to study cinema. So I went abroad for three years and, and then I came back in 2017 to my home country, Portugal. And I've been working in all sorts of audio visual productions, uh, you know, commercials, weddings, corporate video, personal videos, short films, you name it. And I've been trying to get into into movies, into proper uh, feature films for some time. It's pretty hard in my country unless you have the, the right contacts, unless you have money. But hopefully at some point I'll get there. But yeah, this is sort of my the resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like many things, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, so. yeah. Especially in, in Portugal, there's there's... There's the need to have uh, a lot of contacts to know the the right people, and you know, films in cinema in Portugal it's somewhat underdeveloped, at least comparing with, for example, Spain, which has a huge industry in terms of filmmaking. Portugal still has a few steps to to tread to get to that point, but it's it's getting there. At least we have some some references uh, like. Pedro Costa, I don't know if you heard about him, uh, Manuel de Oliveira. Uh, there's some few names that have earned some awards abroad, but uh, yeah, it's still it's still not up to the professional, let's put it that way, the professional level, at least the industry, uh, like most European countries and the United States, but it will get there, hopefully. Mm. Best of luck, man. Well, today, on today's episode, we are going to be looking at three films from the Iranian writer 
producer-director Abbas Kiristami. I think let's start off by just everyone go around the table and say what was your previous knowledge or experience with Kiristami and maybe what you were expecting getting into today's episode. Uh, I'll just give it as a start off. I had heard the name, knew that he was a a very highly acclaimed Iranian director, but could not have told you a single film that he had ever made. Um, so I, I didn't really know what I was about to get into uh, for myself. Kari, what was your what were your preconceived notions or previous experience with Kiristami? I had heard the name. I had heard that Martin Scorsese seemed to be a fan and in some kind of contact with, with him. And then just a couple of years ago, I saw Taste of Cherry, and I thought that was uh, thought-provoking and uh, excellent. I, I didn't know what to think about the ending of the film, but I was immediately intrigued by his you know style of this very personal camera angles and relaxed mood and tone. So, and then I saw that on movie there's or movie Mubi, however you they want you to pronounce that. Uh, they have like a collection of more Kiarostami, so I immediately started watching them and <laughs> came up with this idea of this episode. Nice. Henrik? I, on my end, was not previously familiar with with Kiarostami. I would hazard to guess that from us, perhaps Kari was the, was the most knowledgeable of, of today's director pre- beforehand, and most likely, like listening to two of you, I'm the one who shamefully hits the rock bottom here. Uh, you mentioned the, or Gary mentioned the Scorsese remark, and I also have a faint recollection that I may have once, like, run across a magazine interview of Scorsese where Kirasami's name name would have been dropped. But then again, when it comes to high-class American directors, like, it's a sea of names. Who hasn't, haven't they been recommending from from the international cinema scene? So on that regard, I can't even be certain of, of that fact. Gotcha. And Pedro? Yeah, so I've I've watched my first Kiarostami film in 2015, I think, or 2016. It was when I was studying abroad. I didn't study at, at the university, but uh, at the time, you know, when I was abroad, I I bought plenty of books because uh, I found these charity shops. I studied in, in England and there's this thing called charity shops where you have uh, codes, books, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff that are sold for a very low price. And I, I used to buy a lot of books from there. And I've come across um, books from Persian poets like uh, Rumi or Omar Khayyam. And I started reading them and I was I was fascinated with the poetry. I've been a, a fan of poetry for a long time as well. And at some point I decided to explore um, Persian cinema, Iranian cinema. And I remember that I, I had heard about uh, Kiarostami. I knew that he had won the um, Palme d'Or Awards at the Cannes Film Festival at some point. So I I brought home a DVD from the university library, which was, I think it was Taste of Cherry. And I watched it then and I was, I was blown away. I was, I, I was immediately a, a fan. It was a translation 
of sorts of the poetry that I was reading then, it was conveyed through images and through the rhythm and pace of his film. It was very lyrical and poetic. And I soon afterwards, I I brought home as well uh, through the through the olive trees, close up, and a few others, and I. Yeah, I fell in love with his work. So I've been a, a fan of his work ever since then, 2015, 2016, yeah. Mm, regarding this close-up, you made like a video essay on your YouTube channel regarding mm -hmm. it. And I thought that was great. And that kind of started the whole process that you're here. And I think that might even be the most celebrated, the most famous work from the director. We're not going to cover it today, but maybe on some future episode who knows but mm -hmm. is there something that you would like to say about that still close up about close up yeah it's certainly one of his most famous works uh, one of his most divisive works as well um, uh, it's I think it's a fascinating work because it really blurs you know the the frontier the barrier between film and documentary and um, through my video essay on YouTube, I've tried to to explain some of, some of the main subjects, some of the main ideas in the film, why I think it's so such a special film. And I think it's, yeah, it's representative of Kiarostami's corpus uh, because it has uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the themes that he explores in his other films and this this blurriness between reality and fiction and the way it takes advantage in a way of people, of ordinary people in order to convey this uh, fictional reality, this very poetic reality where he develops his main themes of, of, of compassion, of, of, of death, of relationships, of trusts and everything else. I think, I think it's an amazing work, yeah, one of his finest works and certainly one of the most famous, yeah. Yeah. Does somebody want to give some kind of overview of Kiarostami, or is it my time to go? If you, yeah, go for it, Kari. Yeah, well, so Iranian director connected with the new wave movement, person cinema movement that started around the 60s after Kiarostami had worked a lot in advertisements for uh, Iranian TV. And after that, he kind of started with short films and kept doing them even after he started his career with like more feature-length films. Majored in painting and graphic design. Uh, so yeah, posters and commercials were what he, what he was doing in the early days. And there are certain themes that repeat all the time in he, most of his films anyway. This sense of the, the original and what's the difference with, with original compared to a so-called perfect copy themes of you know adolescence honesty and also having these kind of plot lines that doesn't doesn't necessarily have a beginning and an end in the traditional sense you know it starts off at some point maybe after what you would consider the beginning and then ends before the traditional ending mm -hmm. that way kind of feeding your imagination you have to fill in the blanks more yeah, certainly. I think I think Kiarostami is, is quite subversive in a way. He does really unconventional films. Uh, they come across as very, very simple, very, very pure, not very complex. But beneath the superficial layer, they they go against 
many of the rules of filmmaking and um, the way that he explores those themes that you were talking about as well, the generational differences between youth and adult people and uh, honesty, like you said, and truth. He employs certain devices that further enhance those those ideas and lead us to fill in the blanks, like you said. Uh, his cinema is a sort of an incomplete cinema of sorts. That's that's the way I think he called it, because he intends uh, the spectators, the viewers, to fill in the, the blanks, the, the gaps, uh, the things that he doesn't show, but he ultimately suggests. And I believe that's one of the highlights of, of his work, is the way that he connects with the viewers through through that process, is to make us to make us work by ourselves, to interact with him in a way. I, I agree. I, there's something, you know, I, I almost, you're right. His filmmaking is simplistic, which I, I think could easily be considered an insult, but it's, it's, a, it's so not. It's um, only because it appears simplistic at first. Um, but you're right. There's, there's so many layers that are, that are sort of hidden underneath there. The thing I got after, and we'll get into specifics of each of the three films that we'll talk about, but just generally speaking, it feels very almost voyeuristic sometimes mm -hmm. where yeah. it feels like someone just took a camera and they just set it over there and then walked away. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we all of a sudden like, are we supposed to be watching this? <laughs> um, and because, like you said, he the way he enters and exits a scene where he enters what, what some might consider late, it only adds to that... Oh, like I'm, I'm all of a sudden just eavesdropping into this conversation. Um, it's so masterfully done um, so many times. And even though it, it seems like he's sort of doing the same thing over and over again, I, I, never, I never tire of it because it's always so interesting the way that he's doing it. So I, I, just my overall thoughts of the style of filmmaking is I'm, I'm very impressed. Yeah, I think uh, I agree completely. You know, in a sense, the fact that he puts his characters, he inserts them into the narrative and sometimes without introductions, without development of their backgrounds. And it, it's it's very sudden and you're suddenly thrown into this story, into this life. And because of what, what we have talked about before, this blurriness between reality and fiction, it, it, a lot of times it feels like you're witnessing something that it's very, very personal. And sometimes I think, am I supposed to be listening to this? You're not too sure. It's like you're eavesdropping, like you aptly mm -hmm. put it. It's it's very, very interesting. Yeah. Henrik, um, what are your sort of overall general thoughts? Uh, I unfortunately have to be a, a, a little bit of a spoiler sport here. Uh, I kind of meet you guys halfway there. When it comes to Krastami and his his style of filmmaking, is I, I would say it's very divisive. That's like my one word for his, his style. And this is something I usually, when coming to these episodes, I usually don't read the audience reviews. Of the, of the films and the directors that we are going to t 
tackle, but I did do an exception today. And with with this director, I noticed that there there were basically there are two camps that formulated very quickly in the in the audience comment sections on on movie. Where the group A basically says what said what what you guys had said and and really appreciated Kirostani me and his his style of filmmaking and then there was the group B, which mostly or or whose whose criticism mostly centered around feeling bored and feeling that the director just keeps on repeating more or less the same th- uh, same thing not not literally but but kind of like in in the sense or in the feeling that he creates through his films and i really actually can understand and see why our our today's director is so divisive in in the eyes of the audience that's an interesting point, uh, considering though that even though he recycles some ideas, he still it's kind of like every time he starts a new project, his goal was to to try something new. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to understand why a lot of people would feel bored with Kiarostami. His 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 kind of cinema is very well. It's slow uh, for for once. It's um it's very uh very very simple uh it's 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 rhythm it's pacing it's sort of slow when compared with other kinds of filmmaking but for me that's that's a good thing you know i i'm i i am the sort of person that enjoys getting to know other people other stories in a very ordinary very colloquial rhythm uh where nothing is rushed everything happens organically naturally at a very realistic pace and for me Kiarostami speaks to me because because of that because you feel like with his films there's there's no rush there's you don't follow that sort of scheme of conventional filmmaking where you have introductions and uh, development and then you're presented with a challenge and uh, there's a hero or protagonist although in some of his earlier films there's this sort of of structure in a sense but uh in most of his later work, he he got rid of that and he decided to follow something that goes a bit against those those types of rules. And for me, that's that's I don't know. It speaks to me. It's it's a different kind of filmmaking, and I I can accept the criticism that comes from people that perhaps were expecting a different sort of 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 film. Yeah, and I mean, I understand that there can be so many ways of slowness in cinema, how you experience that the film is slow. Sure. It could be like fast paced cutting, but maybe the narrative is dragging, dragging you down. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I just, I'm a little bit amused when I read online that Kiarostami makes slow, slow cinema because you haven't really experienced slow until you've seen Tsai Liang, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, Bellatar, for example. Right. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, all sorts of of filmmaking. It. I mean, I I can accept that uh, Kiarostami is slow, but for me, he's pretty dynamic. Uh, his dialogues, his aesthetics are are very very, you know, exhilarating. The way that he frames his camera, the way that he frames 
the faces, the way that he gives uh, this energy, this movement, because most of his films are, are, are centered around uh, travels, around trips, you know, mostly by car, uh, sometimes by foot. But for me, Kiarosami, it's, it's so dynamic that I, I find it hard to call it to call it slow, but I can understand the, the criticism. Yeah, it's a, it's a form of filmmaking that uh, defies certain expectations. Let's put it that way. Zach, I'm salivating, so we get to the first one. <laughs> Let's get right into it then. Let's start with 1987's Where is the Friend's Home? This, generally speaking, this is a film about uh, an eight-year-old boy, Ahmed, who realizes that he's accidentally taken the workbook from a classmate after school and he has got to get the workbook back to his friend uh, so that he can do his homework for the next day or else he'll face some some dire consequences thoughts on where is the friend's home anyone who wants to start yeah well maybe let's mention that it's kind of part of the cocker trilogy like a yep couple of movies that happen in the village of Kokar in Iran. Uh, where is the friend's home or where is the friend's house? And life goes on and through the olive trees. Mm. And this is kind of the, the, the film that has those themes of, of life and change connected to it. Pedro, what were your, what were your thoughts on where is the friend's home? Yeah, okay, I can start by saying that to me it feels like... Um, among the three films that we're talking about today, where is the friend's home is the most conventional of the three. It's the one that it's perhaps more accessible to a person who has never seen a, a Kiarostami film. Mm. Uh, so you got this this uh, this kid that is um, is trying to return the the workbook from his friend at school, otherwise he'll get expelled. So you got a challenge here, and then he he has to follow. All these sorts of—it's uh, kind of an uh, adventure, a uh, uh, detective an adventure of sorts. He has to look out for his home. He has to ask people where he is. But there's uh, a lot of different people with the same surname in the village, the village that he he goes to look for him, and he has to go into that village. He has to return because they have told him that there's his father, I believe. I went back to sell some doors. There's there, there's a sense of adventure and it's very structured as a film. It's uh, for me it feels like it's very accessible, but it's already a film that puts out there some of the main themes in Kiarostami's corpus. Um, for one, I believe you can see pretty well the the clash of generations in it the, between the youth, the kids, and the adult world. You see that the kids are somewhat misinterpreted by the adults. They're not clearly heard. They are taken as naive, as mischievous. They are taken as not genuine. They're as if they're trying to escape school or homework and just trying to play games the whole day. At the same time, you get this misunderstanding between the youth and the adult generation. The, the youth doesn't really understand their point of view, uh, the communication. There's a there's a, a flaw in the communication between the two generations, and it's something that you see in 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 the other films of Kiarostami, and it's it's very clear in here. I don't know if you guys picked that up as well, but for me it was pretty clear. 
Yeah, uh, I don't remember, I don't recall seeing other films that convey, you know, the, the child's perspective so well. And you can really go to your childhood and, and think how much of a pain the, the adults <laughs> had been sometimes. And on this movie, it's on some other level, really. Like Nobody seems to register what the little guy is saying throughout the movie, mm-hmm. which makes his life much harder in the in the entire story and and then he is not even allowed to you know protest or or say why he is not eating in the evening and just wants to go to sleep or do his homework he that would just escalate this scenario <laughs> yeah i definitely I, I felt bad for him a lot of times because at, at part at parts I found myself wanting to scream at the television. Will someone just listen <laughs> to this kid? Will someone mm. just stop for five seconds and then just say yes? What's wrong? What What do you want to tell me? Because it would solve a lot of problems here. Um, <laughs> and 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 this idea of him, you know, when he comes home, and you know, strict family, you know, saying like, "You do your homework, do your homework," and he's like, "Okay, I want to do my homework." Oh, would you also go rock the baby? Oh yes, mm. and now do you don't? Hey, did you do your homework? You need to do your homework. Oh, will you bring me that water basin? Have you done your homework? <laughs> oh, we go go grab a bottle for your brother. Okay, no, you need to do your. Oh, will you go grab some bread? We need more bread. <laughs> it was infuriating, um, but it to me just yeah, it highlighted that he's just not paid attention to what what he wants to do and what he needs to do is is not really cared for. It's just. It, it, he, I don't know what what that kind of parenting style is, uh, but yeah, he's he's not listened to at all. But I consider that this is the most simplistic uh, film of the three that we're going to dis- discuss tonight, and this might be the hardest one to find. Maybe you know the nuances on, under the surface. Of course, there's the chains that the doors are being changed in the neighborhood and elements that might feel kind of disconnected that are going in the background. And then there's this interesting focus on the grandfather who wants to explain to his friend that, yes, even if there were no reason to spank a child, I would spank them anyway, you know, just to make a point of some kind. Mm. Yeah, so, it does tell us a lot about the the conservative character of society, at least back then. Um, and I think it's, the you know, that actual sequence, it's very interesting because for most of the film, we follow the kid, I think he's called Ahmad. And oh. when he gets to his grandfather, suddenly the kid disappears supposedly to get some bread or no, it's to get tobacco, I think, for the grandfather, right? Yeah. And uh, the, <laughs> he disappears and then we focus on the grandfather father suddenly and it's yeah. a, a very interesting narrative a focus shift in the narrative it is. Uh, and we get this this understanding of 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 a patriarchal and conservative society from the point of view of the grandfather and i think it's one of the one of the moments that actually made me want to scream like you said zach uh to the tv screen what why would you beat him uh, why would you beat him he's just a, a naive genuine kids uh, that is trying to do what's best for him he's trying to explain what he has to do and it's for a good reason and you're and he's telling him that he 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 earns a, a bidding for that and i don't know it's uh, <laughs> the fact that it, there's this change in the narrative by itself it's 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 very uncanny 
but uh, it gives us an impression of how it feels to be a young kid living in Iran in the in the eighties, at least in a village like that in in Koker, right? Hmm. What were you guys thoughts on the changing of the doors? Is it just communicating that you know something like the this moment won't last forever? Same for these doors and blah blah blah. Henrik, do you have any thoughts on that? What what's under the surface in friend's house? Um, I kind of don't don't completely agree with you guys on on the notion that it's it's a failure or that they don't hear the kid or that there's a, there's a like like a miscommunication between between Ahmed and basically any other character of the film to me i i read it more as basically the entire society surrounding Ahmed being of of one that that over exerts the value of, of functionality and formality Like that's the the running theme with uh, in the, every every adult character in in the movie ever since starting from the teacher who points out that he isn't mean for the students because there would be a miscommunication between him and the kids. He simply is mean to them because he wants to drive in, into their skulls. The, the whole there, there is one way how you do it, and if you differentiate from that one way in any, in any form, you are automatically being punished for it. And it's a it's a kind of a value system that the the teacher is is teaching the child uh, the the kids like keep your mouth shut. Don't don't say anything unless you are being asked and do precisely what is being asked of you for, from the first time of time of being told and oh god help you if you have to be told for the second time or if you somehow dev- deviate from the given instructions and later on this is pretty much the, the same sentiment that Ahmed gets from from his his mom who takes the stance that well if if Ahmed's friend is gonna be expelled from school well then perhaps he deserves it and later on the the grandfather who through through his own story tells to his friend that that's also like like his adult life experience when he was working for the unnamed company and was asking why does he get paid only half of the salary that that you that his his superior gets paid it was something like 12000 uh, against 6000 mm-hmm. and the argument that the boss gave gave to the grandfather at that moment is because is is directly that i get paid more because i do when i'm being told once and you get paid only half of what i get because you have to be told twice. So it's it's the exact same system that Ahmed faces throughout the film and what is expected from the kids. So you're saying that it's supportive towards this conservatism? I'm saying that it, it is critical of the conservatism, but it's not a disconnect between the kids and and the adults there there is no like miscommunication between them 
Oh, and it, it's not like mm. it's not a case that that one is not under does not like understand the other because the the other doesn't use correct words or that there's some kind of a like like language barrier or anything like that. It's merely a case of the entire system revolving around pretty much like in my opinion the film states around toxic and limiting and pretty harmful values and that those values kind of kind of forming the entire basis of the society i think the film is also very critical towards the kind of split between the adult and uh, adolescence in a way that the, the kids are being the honest ones of the story clearly and then the Adults are, even if sometimes I felt kind of using the kids for their own benefit, ignoring their mm. feelings. Also, mm. uh, I think uh, the guy who sells these steel doors, when he gets to his home door, I think it seems like it's it's one of those original wooden doors. So the guy who's selling them doesn't even care about them. So basically the message seems to be to me that adults are full of crap. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And I-, I was thinking as well that it gives the impression that um, the kid Ahmed is 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 quite selfless in his in his demeanor, whereas most of the adults tend to look a bit tend to look towards themselves in order to fulfill their interests and are not all that interested in 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 supporting the others. In this case, Ahmed. Um, Perhaps, like Enric said, it's not a matter of disconnect of misunderstanding, but the the whole set of values that informs that society is a bit jacked up. And to me, it feels like it's criticism from Kiarostami. Uh, certainly, he's pointing out some flaws in the in the workings of Iranian society, at least in 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 traditional society, from what we see in that village. And he's trying to make us ponder on alternative ways of perhaps interacting and dealing with each other and uh, in a social level in tra- trying to improve our our behavior our values i think it's it goes somewhat around those lines if i would have to guess that's my interpretation of it at least was this also your first time seeing the film, Pedro, or you've seen it before? No, no, I've seen it before. I, I had seen this film in England as well. What about uh, Like Someone in Love? Yeah, so uh, Taste of Cherry, uh, I had seen it in... It was the first film I've seen from Kerostami, whereas Like Someone in Love, I, I had not seen it. Uh, this was my first time seeing the film. Okay. Well, getting sure. into uh, Where's the Friend's Home, uh, was there anything that stuck out to you from a filmmaking standpoint that you'd like to point out something yes. related to the cinematography or the filmmaking aspect yeah go for it yes i think the film has some real fa- fascination with doors because the film <laughs> starts with the door of the of the children's classroom and here again you kind of see feel that you're kind of voyeuring so when they uh, starting titles are there you just hear those noises from the behind the, ho- the door somebody pointed this out and that's a great observation that yeah the door is swinging there and we are kind of waiting to get inside and is it then the teacher who opens the door and we are uh, our vision is open to this 
whole classroom. And I think that so much thought has been given to every single frame that even though it doesn't use a lot of shots, it's uh, it, it, it looks pretty. Yeah, uh, I think you, you make a, a very good point that I noticed as well. It's that the film is one of the main elements are, are the doors themselves. Uh, like you said, the doors from the school that keep going Kajar with, with the winds, with the current of the winds. Uh, but not only those, but the fact that he's looking for the friend's home, the doors from the friend's home, but you have the door salesman and the, door, the old door artist that follows him in a village at night. And, you know, there's that shot where the doors suddenly open at, at, at Ahmad's home uh, later in the film. And you see his mother, she has those clothes on, on the string on the line outside and the, the wind is blowing them. And there's this sort of sense of fear of the, of the dark or of the unknown. So definitely, I think the doors are, are certainly one of the main elements of the film. But the cinematography of the film, it's, I think it's interesting because you have, it's quite dynamic in a sense comparing to other Kiarostami films because you have these, these yeah. dolly shots that slowly move. You almost can't tell it, but they're moving. The shots are moving. And usually Kiarostami is known for his uh, steady shots, his still shots. You know, the elements might be moving within the, the shots within the camera, but the camera itself most of the times is not moving. And here on this film, you have these dolly shots that are slowly moving and giving this this impression of lifeliness in, in the canvas. And I think this this makes it slightly different from his later more still films. And obviously the cinematography is quite beautiful. I think, for example, the the portraits of the kids in the classroom, some of them are so so beautiful the shots that are so well well taken and uh, the way that he frames the the landscape as the kid moves from between the two villages he frames the hills and the the trees and um, it's interesting that he sometimes he frames these trees i don't know what kind of trees they are but they are they are very similar to the paintings from seper sorabi which is the poet to which the film was dedicated to he, he used to make these paintings, he has plenty of these paintings where he showed these trees with the, the trunk going into the, into the sky, where they have this background in the, in the, in the sunsets. And you have this sort of, of, of framing sometimes when, when Ahmad is moving between the, the villages. And I felt like this was sort of a dedication to, to the poet itself. The, the, the name of the film itself, it's, uh, it's taken from a poem by Seper Sorabi. Mm. I feel that also a lot of the shots are repeated so many times to bring a sense of familiarity to the surroundings, mm -hmm. and you kind of get accustomed to the to the space and know your space. And yeah, it's common for for Kiarostami to use this repetition, and you see it as well quite a lot in uh, Taste of Cherry, for example. Uh, mm. We'll we'll be able to talk about it later, but yeah, it's definitely one of the one of the main devices that he uses to perhaps make us more familiar with the spaces, with the subjects. It's this repetition of, of images, of, of forms that you come across several times uh, that I think it makes his, his, his uh, cinematography, his filmmaking, gives him a, a unique identity 
sorts. Yeah, and I agree what you said that this is kind of d- dynamic in the sense when the kid is running running back to the village of uh, Postech and follows mm-hmm. the guy on the ass or the donkey and it's mm-hmm. it's really rapid and the camera camera is uh, panning and moving a lot. You're kind of after kind of visiting a lot of Kiarostami before revisiting this film again, I felt that yeah, where where are the exploding cars? And it's starting to get pretty quick here for Kiarostami. <laughs> I think the 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 boys going back and forth between the towns yeah, is is really beautifully done. I, at no moment do you ever feel like wait where 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 is it going again or in which direction because he's because the same shots are used with the same framing and then the boy's just going from one direction to the other it it's it's very poetic it's almost like rhyming uh like visual rhyming the way mm. those shots are put together uh i really really enjoyed those yeah yeah this sort of shot where you follow a subject or an object uh, going through a, spe- a specific trail or voyage. Uh, it's something that he used plenty in other films as well of his, uh, for example, Through the Olive Trees, Tastes of Cherry, like we've said in, in earlier films as well. Uh, in Close Up, for example, you got the shot where the, um, the gas can is uh, going on the street, down the streets for a very long time. And you got this shot in uh, in this film, in uh, where is a friend's home, where he's going uphill. There's a tree on the top of the hill, and I think we see the shot two or three times. And he's you see for the entirety of of the way he's going, and we're we're in there, we're in with him, and we're following him, and uh, we're accompanying him during that time, during that that travel. It's it brings us closer to the actual action that's happening on the screen. I find that very, it's very enjoying it for me. I also really enjoyed whenever he, he gets to the town and he's looking for his friend and he thinks he's at the right house and you see the dad come out and he's holding the, the shutters and he's loading the shutters onto the donkey. And then the little boy comes out, but he's holding the shutter up yeah. on his, on his shoulders. You can't see his face. Yeah, and then I think it, it's so ingenious. Yeah. It feels like you're just like, Oh God. Is this it? Is this him? Is this him? Is this him? And you're just waiting for, is he going to turn? Is he going to set it down? And then he goes behind the donkey. Exactly. And it's like, okay, yeah. he's got to come around the other side. It's <laughs> it, it's so ingeniously that's... made. There's a suspense, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're like, you're thinking, is that him? That's probably him. He has the same shorts, the same color. Yeah. This is the uh-huh. same surname. This, this is probably the house, but... You can't mm-hmm. see it. You can't see his face, and I think it's amazing. Yeah, that's a, an ingenious sequence. I, I find that amazing. Yeah, also appreciated some of the two-dimensional looking shots that are taken straight from the front. And for example, the the house with its two floors, and you kind of see all yeah. the, all the lines going straight. Yeah, and then of that's course, another yeah. trademark of Kiarostami. That kind of shots you see people on the. On the verandas or or in front of a structure, it probably comes from painting. I yeah. think because they're usually very well composed, and uh, they're they're very aesthetically pleasing. The one that is in the all the posters, I believe, the the iconic shot when the guy is going up the hill to Postech. So the shot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the shot as well of the film. If I had to to pick one, but I think there's there's another theme that's that goes across much of Kiarostami's filmography, which is the, um, 
the value, the importance of art when you have that that uh, door carpenter that's accompanying him um, in the village at night. He speaks about the the windows and the doors that he has made in the past with his brother, yeah. and you see these these patterns on the walls, uh, this lighting that that comes from from the windows of other houses, and you see how how intricate, how unique they are. And uh, he talks about how some of these have been taken to to the city, to museums, or to I don't know, to places outside where they're supposed to be, uh, their original context. And he he digresses a little bit about um, about the uniqueness of art, about the expression of individuality for from an artist. And this is this is a theme that that um, is is discussed as well in in other works of Kiarostami. I feel like this is one of the um, one of the initial references that he has in in his work it's one of the inceptions of of the theme in his earlier work mm. henrik anything that uh stuck out to you from a filmmaking standpoint um not that much on on my end um i once again i kind of find myself on on a different end with the with the three of you because I really was not that captivated by the moment when when Ahmad is is running up and down repeatedly that one hill. That's okay. We welcome all kinds here. <laughs> yeah. all, all as well. Uh, anything else before uh, we close on where is the friend's home and move to Taste of Cherry? I don't know. I'm kind of hungry for cherry myself, but if you have anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry well, for cherry as on. well. Uh, I would just like to say that for me, one of the things that impresses me in, in Where is a Friend's Home is just the, the fact that it, well, as a Portuguese, the, the 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 setting is something altogether completely different from what I what I know. Uh, the fact that this happens in a Persian village where you have, where you almost have no electricity, you have this traditional houses and the dresses and the language itself it's just one of the things that uh, pulls me into into his work you know if it wasn't for the cinematography or the or the dialogues or the acting or whatever at least this is something that draws me in because it's um it's a different kind of world and something that that is bound to interest me at least it's such an altogether different culture and it's so so vibrant in a way that just the fact that you see the the old man at the tea house or the the ladies all together at the center of the the village just washing their clothes or the relationship between the patriarchal figure the maternal figures and uh, the way that education was happening at the schools uh, in iran at the time all of these are elements that for me if it wasn't for the other things that would end up drawing me into the work and by themselves they're already something that brings value to the film Mm. all right well let's now move to the 1997 film taste of cherry who wants to who's uh eager to get us going i think kari and and pedro are about to bust their loads so yeah i'll I'll leave kari to go for that yeah go (laughs) ahead my man (laughs) okay yeah, well, this is about a guy called Dabi, played by Homayun Ershadi, more or less, who <laughs> wants to kill himself. And that's kind of all there is to it. And comes across four or five blokes who he wants 
to be his helper in this mission. And yep, he needs some help to somebody to glow, throw the... Jesus, those church bells, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he wants some help to kind of shovel some dirt on him, on his dead body. Uh, so my thoughts, very homosexual vibes in the beginning. Because you can't can know if he's just out to pick some guys or to get some workers or... And that's kind of what okay. pulls us in and kind of dangerous territory for Iranian filmmaker. <laughs> okay, can I just say, I am so glad you said that because <laughs> being a gay man, you know, I'm a, I, I sort of think everything's a little gay. And <laughs> I, I literally wrote in my notes, he's either looking for sex or to kill someone. <laughs> because it did feel very like I'm looking for someone and, you know, it it felt very homoerotic for a moment. And then later realizing, oh, no, no, okay, so he wants someone to basically make sure he's killed himself effectively. Uh, but yeah, I definitely got a little gay vibe. And same, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting because it's this is in Iran. Very dangerous for gay people there. Um, and so I thought, oh, that that's what this movie is going to be. And then, of course, it takes a different turn. But okay, whew, not the only one. Yeah, yeah. You can see from the reaction of the the first guy that he tries to, to to talk to. He's at the phone booth uh, at the hills, and when he he tries to, well, eventually he goes back to his shed where he's working. But he tries to call him back, and when he gets to his car, he ends up getting very defensive and somewhat aggressive. He ends up telling him to just move along, to 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 go. So yeah, definitely, like you said, something dangerous or difficult to 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 depict in Iranian society because it, it's such a delicate theme but not necessarily um you you get or we get easily this kind of uh dangerous vibe homoerotic vibe homosexual vibe whatever it is or he's gonna axe murder somebody but but is that vibe only culturally manufactured from our external point of view or because when i when i think about if I try to step back a little bit from my own point of view, if possible, I know that in many Muslim communities, much of what we would consider gay or affectionate uh, towards the same sex, sex, it's just brotherly behavior, really. At least from my experience, if this is in any way comparable, of course. But in Morocco, I've I've had this experience that, you know, guys, if they're cl close at all to each other, they hold hands and they pat themselves on the back. And a lot of this physical contact which is something you don't really do in in finland M more of course i think in portugal and spain but <laughs> yeah but yeah, it even yeah. increases down there uh, in morocco interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah certainly uh at least in portugal it would be taken um something not you know it's something that you could do uh without having eyes without having somebody frowning upon you uh it could be made out of fun or out of uh, genuine feeling of love uh it's but at least i get the impression that i got from the from the first guy that he tried to interact with was that he reacted a bit aggressively even uh, at some points uh because of this uh sort yeah. of homosexual subtext that's at least that's the impression that we got perhaps as westerners i don't know if that came across for Iranian or other Muslim people that might have seen the film. It's something worthy to, to, to inspect, to ask somebody else, for sure. And famously, Roger Ebert, my great friend in this podcast, 
No, but I, I, I don't always agree with the guy, but he said that this film is, quote, excruciatingly boring. <laughs> it's he, a famous review of the film, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and on his list of most hated film on his website. He gave, like, what, two thumbs down or something like that? Or I don't know. It, 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 <laughs> I, I saw on the website one star. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. one one star. Yeah, that's pretty mean. <laughs> yeah. Or he took it from the perspective that, yeah, there is something homosexual going on in the beginning. But, yeah, I, I'm surprised that he wasn't able to, in his review at, lo- at all, in my opinion, to kind of step back and, and also kind of uh, analyze further the ending instead of just going like, oh, this is shit. And that's the impression that I got. Yeah, yeah, I had that impression as well. I think I've read his review at some point way back and I, I had the exact same impression that you just mentioned that he he just basically didn't like the film. He just thought it was crap and just discarded it altogether without attempting to understand what really was going on from the from the point of view of a, of a, of a cinema goer that expects to be branded with a different kind of cinema i don't know perhaps he had some expectations towards the film i don't know uh, i don't know if if he saw the film after it it had received the palm door I, I have no idea i'm i'm just guessing but the impression that i got was that he didn't put an effort into actually understanding what was happening, not just with the story, but with the film itself, with all all this sort of um, subversive character and the lyrical imagery, which the film has a lot going on. Uh, it felt like he just gave up at some point and just uh, discarded the whole film. But it, certainly the film has a lot going on, on many, many levels. And uh, yeah. we, can, we can talk about it. Yeah, what really kind of, I must say, irritates me in that review is that he himself asks there, quote, and why must we see Kiarostami's camera crew, a tiresome distancing strategy to remind us we are seeing a movie, question mark. Well, perhaps he should have kind of molded over and should have figured out why it might be there. I mean, it's, I don't think it would be an accident to do such a decision. I just thought that, hmm. Interesting, but on the first go, I wasn't sure what to think about it. I'm curious to hear what Henrik uh, thought about the film, because since in the previous film he wasn't right exactly on the same on the same standpoint that we were. But uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Henrik. What can you tell us about your impression of uh, Taste of Cherry? Mm. Well, I, I I have to disappoint you guys once again. I'm not exactly on the, on the same wavelength. <laughs> as, as the three of you, uh, from my point of view, I kind of I, I do think that that Kirastami, uh, Kirastami's films, to me they get better. The the kind of uh, the more late era era they are. I I did like the Taste of Cherry uh, mm. more than I did like uh, Where's the Friend's House. Well, well, to check out that, check out the the whole Ebert, Ebert review because I I do think that this will per- perhaps be be the the best opening for for possible 
discussion about our dif uh, differing point of views. I love that word, discussion, by the way. Not fighting, not fighting. <laughs> no, no, not fighting, discussion. Uh, I was really surprised exactly how Ebert felt, uh, felt about the taste of cherry. Before reading the review, I was like, I, I was 100% confident that this is a film that Ebert will actually give two thumbs up and really mm -hmm. love. And I, most definitely, I am not as aggressively against the taste of cherry as Ebert is. Like, from, from the from the trio of, of today's movies, this is my second favorite. But I actually, I can understand Ebert's point of view still. To, I, I, I also agree with Ebert to an extent. I too feel that the the gay coding at the beginning of the film is somewhat misplaced. And I was I, also I was wondering why exactly is this here? Yeah, but I yeah, sorry but if it is there at all. Well, yeah, if it is there at all, I read that it, it was there. Like, my first wipe also was that a main character is a gay character. And when it then gets all of a sudden twisted around, I was kind of like, why am I being eluded into this direction that we are following a gay man when it's a suicide situation? I still actually can't quite understand the the... The reason behind that decision, like I can understand it in, in a mechanical sense, like it's one of the rules of filmmaking. You have to have a twist, and well, there, there you have your twist. It's a, it's a, it works as a surprise and as a turning point for for the film. You think you are following a gay man, no psych. It's a suicide scenario. But what's like the 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 issue with that? It kind of piques your interest on what's going on here and and. Yeah, what is there beyond that? My my issue is that if if that really is the reasoning, why why we have have that element in in the beginning of the film, if that truly is is all there is to it, and it's not some type of a like like symbolic gesture that just went over my head, in that case, I feel that it's actually cheap, and somewhat lazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hop on your side for a little here. Um, there are there are moments where I thought the film drug just a bit. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I mean, I, I'm all for give me some artistic shots. I'm all for giving me some you know, some visual poetry. But there were definitely moments where I'm like, okay, we 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 gotta get going. Like, come on, you gotta something something's gotta happen here. I don't think that it's, I, I don't I don't think it's as bad as Ebert thought it was. May he rest in peace, because I'm also I'm also a big fan as well. But it's 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 also my second favorite of to, of today's three selections. The, while there were moments that I thought were incredibly beautiful, and I thought that there were, uh, there's that shot of him standing and he's watching the the machine pouring the dirt down, and you see he looks at the shadow of the dirt being poured into the into the hole and then he's looking at his own shadow standing next to it i thought i mean i i, I literally said out loud oh wow that's 
a beautiful metaphor of, you know, sort of this from dust we came and from dust we shall return. And he's in this place where he's trying to return to that dust as soon as possible. I, I thought it was, I thought that was very beautiful, but uh, yeah, it, it, there was definitely some moments that just felt like it was dragon. Mm, all good things return to the earth. I suppose that's some Persian poetry as well, originally. Mm-hmm. And all this, I'm, I mean, there was some kind of a uh, Bible-ish, Cor- Quran, poetic vibe when he said that, you know, check if, if I'm in that hole and if I'm alive and if I'm not, then pour this this earth on top of me. Yeah, I can't say I had the same impression. Um, I mean, I've seen the film three times now, I think. And for me, it didn't shock me to have that apparent almost sexual vibe at the beginning. It was something for me, at least it, it felt like it came up organically for the lack of a better word. So it, it just didn't shock me. But in general, the film itself, I can understand why someone would say that in certain areas, the film could use a bit of um, a rush, uh, let's say, but, you know, it goes against, you know, Kiaros Tami has said that he, he actually tries to, he tried to make his films, he tried to put into his films these moments of everyday life, these moments where nothing happens, nothing, nothing, there's no actual action in it, because, you know, in everyday life, we have moments where we are talking moments where we are moving or listening to music or eating or whatever but there are moments where actually nothing happens and i for me it feels like this brings a certain a certain realism to his work and uh, even in these moments where there's absolute silence where you only hear i don't know the winds or the or the or the car moving around the hills it just it's it just suits me. It's it brings me to a a point to a to a place where I'm actually in the film itself because it replicates reality as I see it. At least that's my personal point of view. Um, I feel like definitely there are there are moments where there's not much going on, but there's it, it, there's there's a balance in the film. There's moments where you got dialogue as well and the dialogue among the three guys that he brings into his car that he manages to that he convinces to to bring with him to the place where he wants to to be buried uh the dialogue is it's pretty good and the fantastic thing about it is that the dialogue was improvised on the spot which is uh which is amazing uh, especially for the 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 dialogue the monologue of the um, yeah. of the uh, uh, the taxidermist the the third guy that he manages to get into his car where he makes this beautiful monologue about uh, how he was convinced not to kill himself by the taste of mulberries uh, mulberry tree where he was trying to hang himself and uh, he comes across the mulberries and tries it and their taste their flavor is so amazing and then the sun rises and this absolutely beautiful uh, sight that he has and the kids that are going to school appear and uh, ask him to, to, to shake the, the tree branch so they, that they can have some mulberries as well. I mean, but even the, 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 the dialogues with the, with the young soldier and uh, the uh, second the character, the imam, exactly, thank you. Uh, even the dialogues with these people are so 
interesting because the way that uh, the the main actor uh, Omayun Irshadi is trying to persuade them, trying to get them comfortable, trying to uh, become a friend, literally, like he says to the to the soldier. I think they're so 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 natural and it's so amazing. It feels like you're watching a a conversation naturally developing in front of you spontaneously and. Uh, yeah, that's one of the main highlights for me. Uh, I didn't at all felt like the movie needed to pick up the pace at any point, but I can totally understand why uh, uh, somebody else would would feel like having it. That it just feel I just felt like the movie spoke to me in a very in a very similar way of thinking that I that I have. Yeah, there's uh, something to be said also that Abbas Kiarostami likes to use non-actors in his films. I read that the, the army boy is a non-actor and so would be yeah. the imam. So I Not I, only that, not only that, the Omayun Arshadi, the main the protagonist, he's he was a, a non-professional actor as well. He, he in fact was a, an architect turned antique dealer that was uh, found by Kiarostami by chance. Mm -hmm. And he employed him in his film and he makes a wonderful job, doesn't he? I mean, he, he looks like a professional actor. The way that I remember, for example, the the reply that he gives to the the, the, the kid that wants to become an imam when he tries to, to quote the Quran and he replies saying that if I wanted to be lectured, I would ask somebody else with a bit more experience, experience in a bit more years of experience, something like that. I just found that so amusing. But yeah, Omayun Shadi, he does a wonderful job as an actor and he's a non-professional actor. I, I find that amazing how Kiarasami managed to to get these people into these, into these roles, uh, let's say, and to take so much out of them and so naturally. It's, it's definitely something special. Yeah. I have to say I am blown away that Irshadi is, was not a professional actor. I just looked him up and you're right. Yeah, he was an architect. And this was his... I mean, <laughs> Girostami found him sitting in traffic one day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> it, amazing. That's <laughs> mind-blowing. And the fact that also the, the, that, that monologue was not pre-written is also astonishing. I It, it definitely lends itself to this very natural, very raw filmmaking style. You know, like I said, it's very sort of documentary-esque. It's very cinema verite. It's uh, the, the thing that I that I noticed that I really think amplifies that, especially if you don't know, like I did, didn't know that these people were not actors and most of this was not written. The fact that there's moments where the actors are interrupted by cars going by. Yeah. By yeah. construction sounds, sometimes mm -hmm. to the point that you can't hear what they're saying. And <laughs> you, you, some, maybe they repeat, sometimes they repeat what they said. And sometimes you just, you just, you just miss that part. And you just have to, through context of the rest of the conversation, you know what was probably said. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, again, like I said, yeah. it's like they just put a little secret camera in the car <laughs> and then just walked away and said, well, let's see what we pick up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely one of the trademarks of Kiarostami as well, and I think you probably noticed that as well in uh, in uh, in in our next film, uh, like like someone in love. But in many other films of his, sometimes you get these 
natural these naturalistic sounds that are happening it's for example in taste of cherry it's either a, a tractor or a, an helicopter or uh, there's something happening that prevents you and prevents the the actors themselves the people in there from clear, clearly perceiving them and it's 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 so realistic you know sometimes you're talking and there's i don't know there's a horn from a car or there's something falling that makes a crashing sound or sometimes the music is too loud or the conversation at the bar it's immense and you can't clearly discern what the other person is saying so you ask them to repeat and this brings this naturalistic film this naturalistic feel to his films that it, i find it, i find it so astonishing it's and it's one of the trademarks of kiarasami as well you find it in in many other films too but in taste of cherry it's definitely one of one of the things that struck me the, the most too going a few steps back we were talking about the funny moments of the film and there is one that particularly made me laugh out loud when there's this i think it's the imam who says my friend has cooked an omelet and it smells good let's eat <laughs> you'll find a solution and the guy replies thank you i know he's made one but eggs are bad for me <laughs> <laughs> i chuckled as well every time i listened to yeah you know i i just don't know how how they came up with this sort of dialogue but it's uh <laughs> <laughs> it comes out it's, of nowhere it, yeah it's something quite quite special yeah and, i do uh, like the eggs were bad for me that was good <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of understand why Roger Ebert or anyone could feel feel bored with the film at times. There's something to be said about the the real time nature of Kiarostami's films, though, and I I think that there's a certain meditative quality, and and it's really nice. I think it's executed better in some films than others. For example, I really love how it works in like someone in love. Kiarostami himself has said that. I often don't like cuts. I don't like reverse angle shots. I find okay. them very fake and very untruthful to the viewer. And he also said, this is kind of paraphrasing, but uh, as he has gotten older, he has come to see storytelling more and more as an obstacle to true cinema. Hmm. Yeah, he's definitely fond of, of, of long takes and perhaps even sequence shots. And I believe that aids and that heightens the, the impression that we get of realistic time that you mentioned. Um, I, I find it interesting, for example, that in Taste of Cherry, I don't think you have an over-the-shoulder shot at all. And you never, I, I think you never have a shot where you find the, the two subjects that are having a conversation. I don't think you have the two people in the same shot. It's always a shot either of the driver, uh, Omi Nirshadi, or the or his uh, companion, the, the person that he picked up, uh, which I find it very subversive. And yeah, Kiarasami has, has spoken about it in, in some interviews, that he he has this language, uh, this this language that I find unique, that it doesn't exactly follow the, the rules of conventional filmmaking, but it doesn't detract from the power of the of the film itself or, or the narrative in my case i feel like it brings me closer to the work uh as something unique something different from what we're used to seeing in most of the films um, yeah yeah maybe henrik wants to drop in and i think this might be his favorite subject of taste of cherry or the entire evening i mean we have discussed this topic in certain terms before suicide in different ways but you know mm -hmm. henrik is is this 
portraying the topic of suicide carelessly or in a bad light? Um, not carelessly and not in a bad light. In fact, the way how the film topples uh, the, the theme of suicide, or not the way, but the stance that the film takes w- with suicide, which is that it does not okay it, but it also won't judge it. Like it, it takes a neutral stance on the question. And that is one of the things that I really did like with with the taste of, of Cherry. My, uh, then again, when it comes to handling the, the topic, uh, topic, I that's perhaps my, uh, my biggest problem with the movie. Unlike perhaps Ebert, I wasn't directly bored with with the film and my my problem with the movie is not that it moved slowly my problem is that i kind of was was missing one more argument to the discussion surrounding the surrounding suicide and i kind of felt that the film didn't take take its arguments kind of far enough essentially when, when it comes to how the characters react to our main hero's hero's proposition it it boils down to two arguments that the first one comes from from the imam who who states that you shouldn't kill yourself because it's against uh, the will of god a theological argument yeah yeah and in in that discussion the in in my opinion the kind of freshest or or Best observation surrounding the question is is when he notes that killing yourself is still an act of killing, and and then there there is the the second second main argument, which comes from the taxidermist who makes the point that the main hero shouldn't kill himself because wanting to live is can can boil down to just your perspective. And your viewpoint of, of life. And that viewpoint can change. So you shouldn't kill yourself because perhaps tomorrow is a better day. Or perhaps you can still find something in, in life that makes life worth living for uh, for you. And both of those arguments kind of ain't new. They weren't new even, even when the film was made. They are kind of the most used arguments whenever... Somebody makes the makes the case you shouldn't kill yourself or wants to somehow counteract any kind of a suicidal thought. Yeah. The, the, the reliance on on God and reliance on theology, don't kill yourself because God doesn't allow it. Uh, or, you know, don't kill yourself because, you know, the tomorrow may be a better day. And I was kind of just hoping that there would have been a third argument something not not as traditional not as often stated out well and, yeah so go ahead uh well yeah it's so open ended in terms of what you can interpret from from the ending let's maybe talk about the ending because many do say that the ending makes no sense or it's not working out well it depends how you read it, and I'm actually kind of surprised that nobody has kind of said anything about the ending in a in a way that this would be extremely ignorant of the topic of suicide. But 
good because I don't think there is anything like that. I, but I'm shocked about the extreme responses against the ending in other ways. When I saw the film, like I said, I didn't really think about it. But on the second watch, I thought it's actually kind of interesting meta way uh, to save the character's life and a statement for life. And some have even seen it as a statement against the kind of conventional and stuck up ways of cinema like we can do this and you can't stop me or or a statement against the limitations of art house theme i don't know what they precisely mean with that but um, this is not storytelling in a to b sense they they kind of leave the audience to figure it out this is like a short window as many kiarostami films are if not all kind of a window into life in almost real time so Kind of anything can happen, people can talk over each other, or the honking horn can get in your way. But could it also be that Kiarostami also is sneakily kind of denouncing the, the Muslim belief that suicide is not okay? So instead he kind of gives a way out for the audience. The audience at home is fearing that it's going to be a successful suicide mission. But he gives the countrymen kind of a sarcastic way out of this situation. He didn't really survive, but let's pretend that he did in meta. Uh, that's kind of my take or how I took the ending. Okay. Um, not, not, not precisely. The, the film itself and its narrative leaves the question open whether or not do, does the main guy, does Mr. Paddy go through with his plan? He's, but, but towards the, the end, he ta- starts to get more and more hesitant with the idea of, of killing himself. To me, the, the, the ending of the film is like Ebert uh, suspected. It, uh, I, I read it as a, distance, a distancing tactic for the audience. Uh, usually when, when movies kind of have the, have the moment when when the the fakeness of of the film is is shown or exposed to the audience there are three main reasons why that is put off either a it's done as a as a fourth wall breaking comedy moment like for example in revenge of the killer tomatoes or b it's it's used as a as a segue into more meta-esque narrative. Like, typically showcased to you early on, like during the first 15 minutes of a horror film that is about making a horror film. Usually a stunt used in, in that type of a movie. Or, or see, it's used for the audience to kind of Get, get the load off from their shoulders. So like after extremely intense and, and troubling movie, in the final minutes, it shows, it's kind of a, re- the audience gets a reminder that this, this all was just a film. And it doesn't it wasn't feel, reality. yeah, and it doesn't feel that jerky to me that, that, that this, that this would just pull the, the rock under your feet. But what do you think, like, I'm not sure which ending would have been more apprehensible at home, like the way it is now, or rolling the credits after he rests down and looks at the moon and raindrops? I would have ended the film when he looks at the moon and the rain, rain starts. Mainly because 
I never felt that. E- even though, yeah, 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 yeah. The Taste of Cherry deals with the topic of suicide, but I never actually felt that this was that hard of an experience. Like, mm. I didn't feel that I was tested in some really deep emotional level, and I'm I'm like like so so pushed to the, the to my the edge that at the very end I have to be reminded that it was just only a movie, only a movie, only a movie. Like the marketing spiel for the last house of the le- on the left went. Mm, I think the film still hits the nail in the head with the title and everything. It kind of asks the question: Can you do without the taste of cherries when he's looking at the moon and ready to die with his sleeping pills? What does the film answer to the question? Well, I think it answers that: Yeah, maybe you can do without the taste of cherries because people factually kill themselves all the time but it gives this nice contrast the man ends his life and then there is the joy of life the making of this movie i would imagine which i think is the taste of cherry which which can be which which can also be like that's also a good reading of the ending and perhaps more positive than what my take was Mm. so I'm going to disagree. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to... Uh, th- this is the part of the show where we, say, where we go, go on Zach's rant. And here's my rant. Bring it. A story is a beginning, middle, and an end. Does it have to if be... It's... Yeah, it does. Or else, it's, or else it's not a story. With, with regards, French New Wave. <laughs> uh, you know, if if it's just a beginning and maybe a beginning and a middle, that's just a premise. That's not a story. Um, and so for me, this does it, it. It removes the ending by giving you this sort of, you know, breaking the fourth wall bit at the end. I'm fine with, uh, you know, maybe giving some sort of ambiguous ending. If if it if you have been given enough information that. As the audience, I have enough information to make a determination of what what I think is going to happen. But it annoys the ever-loving shit out of me when filmmakers do this thing where they're like, well, we're just going to end it. And then we're just going to say, it's up to the audience to decide, but you've given me no way to, to really know. Here, here's a good example. Um, spoiler alert for the film Inception by Chris Nolan. <laughs> The ending of that film, everyone's seen it, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's so, so absolutely end... best. <laughs> it's the best? Is that what you said? It, it, it's the best. The, both the film and the ending, which I'm going to guess, <sighs> I, I already I, I already see what your argument is going to be. <laughs> Great, then you should know that you're in the wrong position. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And that yeah, was so, that was that for you your time in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I th- that film ends and you know, it's this idea of oh my gosh, but is Leonardo DiCaprio is he is he really still asleep? Is it still a dream or is it not? And then he's come out, you know, afterward and said, no, no, no. The point is he walks away from the spinning top. He doesn't care. He's given that up and he's moving on and he's just going to have his life. No, uh, no, 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 no. He either is still in a dream or he's not. And the fact that it's still continuing to spin 
and then you cut. It's just a way of, I, I feel, is a, a lazy filmmaker's way out of saying, well, I didn't really know which way to end it, and so I just sort of left it, you know, ambiguous, and then you just decide. Uh, and so for me, th this is a little bit of that, of, well, we're just going to, you know, who knows? Does he kill himself? Does he not? Does he try to kill himself? Does he just fall asleep, and then the guy comes and gets him, and then, well, we'll just, you know, it's it's just up to you. Um, I, I, I was not a fan of that. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I feel like, you know, the the shot before the the final sequence. It's it's a, a good representation of death when the screen goes to to black for a minute or a minute and a half or something like that. Uh, at the same time, I've heard that there were people that suggested that Kiarostami came up with the final sequence as a way to lighten up the moods uh, of the film since the subject uh, was a bit concerning in the Iranian society, the subject of suicide, which I'm not too convinced about. And the fact that uh, Kiarostami in a, in, a, in a showing of his film, there was a, a, a member of the audience that has asked if the final sequence was a way of distancing uh, as a, a Brechtian device of sorts to distance the, the film from reality and he had he had agreed with that uh, he had replied that yes it was a distancing move it's it's a possibility I, I, just, I don't know for me at least I think that there's this uh, line in the monologue of the of the taxidermist that says that at the end of each a station uh, there's a there's a fruit in the, he talks about there being fruits in spring in summer in fall and winter and I had the impression that uh, that that shot before the final sequence of the end of the black canvas uh, was a sort of a of a winter where the final sequence was a sort of a fruit that came from that in a sense there's there's a, a continuation of after each station of one's life or after each station of one's works creation uh, but I, I you know, it's it's sort of in the open. There's there's plenty of interpretation around the around the internet and the critics' circles concerning this, the final, the end of the film. On the other hand, I, one can see that um, Kiarostami himself has uh, employed this distancing device in many other films. For example, in Close Up, when he has the film happening and closer towards the end, there's the sound starts to have some trouble the 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 sound equipment uh, they say that there's 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 some trouble with it and we we can't actually listen to 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 the characters dialogue what they're saying between uh, Mohsen Mahmal Buff and uh, <laughs> and the uh, and the protagonist and in many other films he 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 attempts to distance the the film itself the the what's happening the narrative from the actual reality the fiction from 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 the reality so it's something that comes that goes along with his uh it's a yeah it's certainly a sort of a trademark of his and not only that but the fact that he used this western music during that final sequence uh it was music from uh louis armstrong i think it's it's um, a continuation of the many Western elements. It's a theme of his as well in in many of uh, his other works uh, across his filmography. The the relation and intertextuality between his um, Persian culture and the Western culture, Asian and Asian the West. He 
he has plenty of of elements and devices that blend these together in the in the in the upcoming film like someone in love there's there's another there's a certain references to that as well but even in a taste of cherry you have this this character that appears for i don't know two or three minutes that there's this guy that's picking up trash and he he looks a bit um not entirely focused on the conversation he he seems a bit and he has this sweatshirt that ha- that says UCLA and he mm. he even asks the the driver asks him do you know what that stands for in an attempt to develop conversation with him and it's just one of these uh, many elements that he cares I mean inserts into the narrative in a, an attempt to bind and connect two very different worlds but at the same time, there's plenty of bridges to to connect them. There's this this these connections that one can stretch across two very different worlds. But yeah, concerning the uh, sorry for the digression, but concerning the final the final sequence, that's yeah, it's uh, it's up to the there's this expression in English uh, the beholders the the well, but that's the beauty. But in here, the meaning it's in the eye of the beholder. I guess it's it depends on one's viewing of the film, the interpretation of each viewer, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I'm okay with ambiguity. I'm okay with leaving the audience feeling unsure which way an, uh, a character is going to go if the character is also unsure of the way that they're going to go. I think that that's... I think that's one of the most human things is to, is to be in that state of, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And so to have a character go through that and to be sort of stumped by what their next step is going to be, I think is, is, is fine. I, d- I just don't like when a filmmaker leaves the, the audience in the dark and maybe they know what's going to happen next, but they don't tell us what's going to happen next or give us the tools to, to determine what's going to happen next. Yeah, I guess it depends kind of entirely how, in what way you are approaching the film when you are watching it. If you are ex- expecting something else, you can, it can kind of hurt you. Yeah, true. <clears throat> All right. Shall we move on to our third and final film of the evening? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Like Someone in Love. This is a French-Japanese film from 2012. And was it wasn't the very last film uh, that he made, but it was near the end um, of his life. Uh, he, this, he is now, at this point, left his home base of Iran and is now f- making some films in other countries and other cultures. I'll st- start by saying I, I think that this is... Uh, sort of a really shows what of a master he is, is that you can leave your home culture, your home language, and go to a different culture in a different language, and yet you still find these very human elements that still translate no matter what. Um, mm. I think I think we're often sort of stuck into whatever whatever's comfortable for us, and that's the thing that we know. And I think it's very brave to say, let's go film this thing in Japan and. Uh, and film it in Japanese. Uh, a bold step for him. General thoughts on Like Someone in Love. Okay, well, yeah. 17 years, more or less, in the making, or at least kind of bubbling in the brain until he finally got to do it. Has some unexpected 
problems there realize that in Japan you you don't have roundabouts apparently and you don't have squares that are round so he almost sacked the entire project because of this but then decided okay we can go with different kinds of roads and squares um yeah definitely my favorite out of the three um after taste of cherry i have a newfound taste for colors in this film after the extremely yellow landscape of taste of cherry <laughs> so much going on here oh, where to even start this grandmother henrik your thoughts what is this grandmother all about in in my opinion the grandmother really isn't all about that much same way as as is as also is not the neighbor and disagree disagree at least about the <laughs> at least about the grand old lady across the street well uh, she like that this is this is kind of, kind of we we have there, there's there's a kind of a wasteful element to Kiro, uh, Kirostami's way of of making movies. That that was this old old sentiment, or or this this age old old rule of filmmaking, which is the setup and payoff that we we all have heard to the the bloody death. And per- perhaps precisely in in like someone in love, we we best see Kirostami. Kind of a disregarding this role, at least in in my opinion. There, there's a hell of a lot of setting up that doesn't really lead into that much of a payoff. Uh, and the neighbor is is in my opinion one glaring example of this. The neighbor is being established or is being set up from somewhere around the midpoint of of the film. And you finally reach the payoff, which is something like a three three minute three minute monologue from the neighbor's end, which essentially pours down into when it comes to really establishing something sustain, sustainable from uh, concerning the the main character or, or the old man of the film, okay. and and those three points are the the old man married his his colleague and the colleague, colleague was was tall and extremely beautiful and that the neighbor has had a long term term crush on on the old man none of which actually in the end means anything in the context of the film really? because none of that really well none of it actually goes anywhere there there is like yeah 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 it mirrors that the mm-hmm. the feeling of of loneliness and longing longing something for for the neighbor it's it's a long longing the old man which is close by and the old man it's a it's a longing for something that he tries to achieve through the uh, utilizing the escort service okay I think she, the neighbor, has a kind of nose equality, just like the fiance of the story. So they're start mirroring, and this very controlling behavior, and the way that the uh, quote-unquote grandfather avoids her, as kind of Akiko avoids the fiance, because of those same reasons, I believe. And both Akiko and grandfather, they avoid the control freaks in their lives, 
And this is kind of a story of kind of two souls who are from extremely different walks of life and generations and everything, but they still manage to understand each other the most in this. They have this special connection and we kind of skipped all, already over it, but the overview of the film, we have a prostitute called Akiko and this is not revealed to her fiance. And that's as, as soon as it kind of, it's, it starts with that, the phone call, the uncomfortable phone call with the fiance and little by little he starts to understand what is going on and there are kind of themes of the lies and white lies even the film starting with the dialogue of what was it i'm not lying clearly clearly she is and in the ending also the fiance goes into this rage blaming that the grandfather is a liar it's it's interesting it kind of keeps this this serene quality and then by the end if we already talk about it the the serenity of the film is literally shattered now with violence and and then the film just ends it's like kiarostami is avoiding showing violence on screen that he doesn't like violence and obviously he doesn't like new japanese films apparently because he said that they are just way too violent to his taste at this point that the, the film it avoids conflict as long as it can and almost like an anti-violence statement it, it's not inherently any kind of statement but it's the end of peace and it's the end of the ability to keep peace by whatever means lies or white lies the harmony the kind of the japanese harmony ends here yeah i feel like the film is converging to a degree to to an end like what we witness uh and i must say i was i was taken aback i was i was surprised i was <laughs> uh taken aback by that f- by that finale i wasn't exactly expecting it especially from kiarostami which like you said it's a man that isn't particularly keen on violence i remember uh curiously that he he talked about Tarantino, I'm not sure if it was about Pulp Fiction or uh, some other film by Tarantino. He said that he liked Tarantino in a sense that he he took the fear and the unsettling aspects of violence and made it a bit more um, uh, accept- acceptable, I think. Acceptable in a sense that he, he took the, the bad out of it and uh, he, he didn't it allowed for one to be confronted with it without having to go to through a, a dark path or something like that. But um, yeah, I think it's a film that uh, deals with many themes that he has explored in the past. And I quite liked it. I, I've, I had seen it for the first time, uh, like Someone in Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first time I, I've seen it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was, I was surprised by the way that he managed to make such a controls and sober and very 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 good very interesting film in a wholly different nature and language although i recognize that you know the themes that he explores there are transversal to any sort of society uh, whether it's japanese or iranian or american or portuguese it's you know it's the the themes of love and jealousy and mistrust the the lies the 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 things that we do to keep things cordial and uh, understandable uh, all the sacrifices that we do and the consequences that stem from that 
I found the way that he managed to put all of that into this film. It, it was so, so, so good. And, you know, you were mentioning the, the grandmother. Um, I felt like it was so touching. The, the messages that she left uh, to Wakiko in the, in the cell phone, yeah. the way that we're confronted with that toic uh, nature uh, of someone that has made such a long travel just to be with a, a little bit of time with her, with her granddaughter. And she was wholly ignored, even though she kept um, waiting for her in different places and telling her, leaving her uh, messages, uh, voice messages, saying that she was going to have lunch, she was going to be in this particular place for a certain time, and then she would leave and be in another place. It, I, you know, it was very, very, very touching for me to, to, to hear that and to experience that. The way that it, it was handled, it was very delicate and uh, very, very sensible. And it's just one of the um, one of the aspects that uh, showcases uh, Kiarostami's aptness to 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 deal with emotions uh, amongst people. These are very complex, and you can see by her reaction in the in the taxi the way that she eventually breaks up, uh, listening to her grandmother's messages. Uh, mm. I felt like that's that suffering, let's say, uh, for the fact that she couldn't really and she, she didn't want to she wanted to but at the same time there's an ambiguity she she could have done it because she she actually she actually saw her uh she ex asked the the taxi driver to go to that uh, it was not a square was it, it was a roundabout or of sorts it was <laughs> something in between but she managed to go there she wanted to do something but she, in the end she couldn't actually meet her she she wasn't she didn't get perhaps the courage to do it because of the yeah. of her line of work I, I, we're not too sure but i found that very 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 touching indeed yeah yeah that was kind of weird that she would not even call her but she was obligated to go somewhere else and mm -hmm. kind of an element of lie here also apparently for Kiarostami, this whole, it all started with this idea of grandmother, and apparently it's extremely integral to the, the to the whole plot. But excuse me, I never really realized what is so integral about it. Henrik, thoughts on like someone in love? Um, this was my my favorite from from today's lineup. Uh, it's a uh, for me this this is really close case between this one and, and The Taste of Cherry. And The Taste of Cherry would have definitely been my, my pick of pick for the day had there just been like like one more exchange, one one one, one more talk about about the about suicide. And and like I, I really, really just like wanted one point that that wouldn't have been so obvious and so typical than than what what we got. So really, really co close race between between Cherry and like someone in in a lab. Yeah, there's a lot of very well built up characters. I feel like the fiance is interesting. The fiance versus the grandfather. These are like polar opposites of each other. Uh, one side we have this 
knowledge and experience and wisdom. And on the other we have, uh, he's kind of being really rude, isn't he? For yeah, a, he's a, very passionate, for sure. <laughs> he's very passionate. And <laughs> I, I felt that could be, could this be kind of a weird mix up between, or weird mix between different cultures that, but like it, it feels like a Japanese guy would never be so on the offense against the grandfather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he's very controlling, and yeah. um, I mean, to me, I would, I would even say abusive, mm-hmm. in that not only does he apparently not trust her so much that he's asking all these questions of where are you, who are you with, who else is there, where, where are you, where are you really, and then well, are you really there? go into the bathroom to flush the toilet? I want to make sure you actually are like at a at a at a public well, count the number of tiles that are on the bathroom floor <laughs> so that later I'll go there and I'll make sure that it's the same number of tiles so I know you're telling me the truth. I mean, Yikes. I would call that I would call that an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think it's an abusing relationship, but you know, at the same time it, it reminded when the two of them are talking the grandfather and and the fiance the grandfather, not the grandfather, the <laughs> the old man uh, yeah. that poses as as grandfather when they're talking in the car, it reminded me of uh, uh, of Bergman's Wild Strawberries in a sense that you get this character that's up front he seems a bit um, a bit rude, a bit mean, a bit controlling, but at the same time there's there's good aspects to him, you know he's. He defies expectations to a degree. He's uh, he's an uneducated from from uh, an academic standpoint. Let's say he left school, as he said, but he, he left school because he wanted to work. He wanted to do something honorable. He wanted to to be able to support himself and the family, I guess. And uh, he's honorable as well when he says he wants to make a formal presentation to him to the supposed grandfather. He wants to to do something that. He says that nowadays most youth, most young people in Japan do not do. He's willing to pursue uh, love, true love. Uh, he's w- willing to do sacrifices in order in order to 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 be with her, just because he finds her to be something, someone special. Uh, and in that sense, you you get this this depiction of him that is. It's not just black and white, you know. It has he has bad aspects to him, uh, naturally, obviously, but at the same time, there's there's some good to him as well. He's someone that is struggling to be good, but doesn't exactly know how to be that. Isn't exact. There's there's an unbalance at that. Uh, the same thing with uh, with the protagonist of uh, Wild Strawberries of Bergman. He seems like an arrogant. Uh, academic, prudish kind of guy, but when you meet the people that have, that know him uh, across the the trip, they they are thankful to him. They are sympathetic to him. When you witness his, the events in his life, you see that there's 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 good to him. And at the same time, this, this is what I felt uh, towards the the fiance, and uh, simultaneously, once again, you get this contrast between, the elderly people the wisdom of the elderly and the the sort of the passion and naivety of the young generation and there there uh, there's a sort of 
game that goes between them they're 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 putting forth these arguments that to support their 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 perspectives and there's there's reason to both of them in a certain sense and they're trying to find something to find some common ground at that and uh, it, it's a theme that uh, as we have spoken earlier in this in this conversation it happens throughout Kiarostami's filmography as well and in here is it is presented as well once again yeah the the sort of grandfather is mystifying in the beginning because we don't know what he really wants. But he just looks like a sweet old man who wants to spend some quality time, but more in in the kitchen than in the bedroom. <laughs> and he just wants to have a good discussion. And even though uh, I don't know how to put it, but Akiko seems a little airheaded in the beginning and I don't know where this is supposed to go and then Akiko goes to bed and well we are never really shown this like what happens during the night between those two guys yes there's an, an ellipse and we can only we can only guess uh, yeah if something might have happened interesting uh, anecdote about the, the the filming process when Kiarostami wanted a shot where the sort of grandfather would be touching the hair of of this girl doing some kind of intimate touching but then the actor said that no i would never do this they tried it like a couple times three times mm -hmm. and they couldn't pull it off apparently so mm -hmm. they scratched that so those cultural differences all over again this grandfather character quotation mark grandfather character is some is on some kind of a journey as well like he he's looking for some company apparently could be that he's looking for sex but when the relationship between Akiko and him deepens, when the fiancé comes into the picture, they come more close to each other and feel, I think, more connection to each other. And at this point, then he kind of takes on the grandfather role and kind of realizes, at least at this point, that this is my place and <laughs> not being some something else. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I find it, for example, interesting too that um, Kiara Sami has said that he he picked up his actors um, with with the intention of uh, he he paid particular attention to their eyes. He wanted us viewers to be attentive to the eyes of the actors, so as a way to read into them uh, since. The, the 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 language was some something completely different from what he was used to and it, and it's something completely foreign or alien to anyone living outside Japan I guess and he wanted us to to pick these insights concerning their characters uh, thoughts and work process through their eyes and I think there's a scene that is particularly successful at that which is when the three of them are in the car and they're in waiting in in traffic i think and there's this shot when you see the three of them um the grandfather and the fiance at the front and akiko in the back and they're silent and you can clearly tell what they're thinking in there you know you can look at their faces and you can see that the grandfather is trying to sort of solve their the difficulties in their relationship is trying to provide some sort of advice the fiance is trying to come across as a, a as a balanced-minded individual that is caring for her, for his girlfriend, as anyone would do. Whereas the, his uh, the <laughs> Akiko is thinking, how am I gonna escape from this? And uh, 
make things look all right and uh, make sure that things go go okay from now on and make sure that this doesn't de develop into something more serious uh, i think that's a that's a great example of the way that you can put your audience uh, into the into the mind frame of your characters and uh, certainly comes across as well through their through their sight through their through their eyes i think mm. i was kind of happy to get a different perspective on the the fiance that he's not not all bad and i think by the way that performance from him is quite spectacular and then we get to the they go to the mechanic shop and we kind of see a small amount of smile a modicum of smile from this guy that he is also mm -hmm. a person although he has beaten up his co-worker danger yeah. danger but what do you think it, this all means if there's any meaning to the fact that th that it all falls apart they are trying to protect trying to do their best from a pretty honest and fair perspective throwing in some white lies to keep his violence at bay but then it all falls apart what does it mean henrik i didn't read anything too deep into it like that's just in, in my opinion that's just how life goes every now and then yeah like si simply because you have good intentions or you make good effort to make those intentions come true it like there's there's no guarantee that there will be but like, like you will succeed at the end of a day so all in all it's kind of more of those glimpses into life where anything can happen in real time uh, kind of yeah i mean the odds were very much stacked against akiko and the old man as as the film progressed because it it because the fiance the, the more you get to know him even though as, like you guys pointed out there are glimpses of of levity and humanity but in in course of this film's narrative the fiance is very much a garbage human being like mm. you you mentioned that this is domestic abuse which is exactly what what the scenario is and coming from this overly controlling control freak who is really ready to, to utilize violence the basically the possibility that you can somehow just sneak around that person or you can just kind of resolve the situation that starts to evolve in course of the film the, the odds of you truly pulling that stunt off they are really dim like we, we are talking about perhaps 20 percent chance of, of, of <laughs> you being successful here it's so in in that that sense uh, yeah there, there is a sense of of realism exactly how badly things eventually boil out to be it kind of dawned on me right now but yeah there is this kind of a original and perfect copy of the original or at least a copy situation in this movie as well where he starts to become more and more the actual grandfather akiko calls the grandfather asking for help because the the fiance is being abusive and it just feels like it would be i think they just ignore him not being the real grandfather he is just the grandfather now and it's kind of a telling with that point that that you did rise up that that he becomes more grandfather also he stands 
at the end of a film, like be before the final confrontation between him and and fiance, but but just just moments before that, he's stance on the problem also is really grandfatherly, which is that he kind of just half-heartedly shrugs it away with, with the whole sera stance that he takes, which, as the film points out, is ex- exactly the, the wrong attitude to take here, because that does not work. I am going to go out on a limb and give what I think, and give my interpretation of the title and what I think it means for these characters. Again, this is a limb. Um, I think that Like Someone in Love is describing both the quote-unquote grandfather and the the boyfriend. Because they're, we'll, we'll start with, with the boyfriend. Uh, the boyfriend is like someone in love. He's not someone in love. He's like someone in love. He's almost like someone in love, but he's not actually someone in love mm-hmm. because he um, really is just a, a controlling asshole. And the <laughs> film begins with verbal abuse and these threats and this control. And uh, doesn't he grab her arm? Um, mm. when they're having the argument at the school, I'm trying to, I'm trying to yeah. remember. Yeah, he, um, yeah. And then, you know, we get this glimpse that he's also an asshole to his coworkers and yet he puts on this smile and he's trying to pretend that everything's fine whenever he now realizes that this old man, oh, this is actually your grandfather. Oh, I, I better put on my, my best appearance. And then it, eventually that goes away and he is then results to then violence by, you know, throwing something and breaking the window and the big dramatic ending. Uh, that is not the, the behavior of someone in love. That's someone trying to be like someone in love. And then similarly, you have the grand, this quote unquote grandfather who also not in love, but he's, but he pretends like he's someone in love. He's, he's acting more like someone in love than anyone else. Uh, he, Let's the we we can imagine he lets the the girl sleep in his bed and he doesn't actually um, have sex with her and then when she needs him when she calls him he's there for her where where are you where can I go what what do you need to do let me bring you in let me get you some more milk let me protect you from this person let me lock the door to me he's acting more like someone in love than the person who's supposed to be in love with her. Let's give a voice for Kiarostami. I'm kind of the quote machine tonight, it appears. But he said about the title, quote, The experience of life teaches us that being like someone in love is more real because everything is uncertain. There are certainties in existence, but love is something much harder to define than light and dark, life and death. I think saying you are like someone in love sounds right, end quote. What did you read? In, in, in I kind of got this feeling that these two characters are trying to meet and this is something that has been almost waited for a while. I mean, why in the first place is this this pimp setting up this meeting with this guy? Is there something deeper going on here? Like, you, you, me, you need some more meaning in your life, honey, or Akiko, and maybe you should meet, meet up with this guy. 
or something or maybe he feels that there could be a connection between the two interestingly the kind of the world world around them is always up against them when the the, the phone is ringing constantly i have this stupid work and i don't know what i'm even telling you but i need you to do this work anyway and it's kind of starts off with that and the phone keeps ringing and everything is against them but they refuse to be uh perturbed and just carry on mm. I'm not sure. Yeah. The, the film kind of hints at that direction at first because the pimp is... He is kind of a pushy or or he's, he's being pushy in a way that hints that there would be something, some type of connection between him and the old man. Because... From from the first lines of dialogue that he gives to to Akiko, I I got the feeling that there's supposed to be some type of a special connection. Why the pimp is so interested that the old man gets what he gets, and that like to me it it started off not reading like your typical provider customer relationship, but as the film kind of goes onwards this is once again returning back to what what i say about uh, said about setting up and paying paying it off it actually kind of goes nowhere like the pimp disappears from the picture the old man never actually comments the pimp they even the film even introduces a second character who now knows the old man who is the ex-cop now in private sector guy who they meet at the mechanics shop mm. mm-hmm. but but like, like like that feeling that you get in the beginning of the film, it's just kind of a forgotten and dropped off. And at the end of the day, I don't actually believe that there was any kind of a like more significant meaning in the way how how the pimp wanted to like Akiko to go and meet the old man. Like at the end of the day, it was just you know. The old man is paying for for this service. He does not want to fail alone. So Akiko, you know, you go and and you deal with this. Yeah, but I, might, mm. I, I was just going to say I might be wrong, but the the impression that I got from from that was that we kind of at least personally speaking, I felt like Akiko in a way express how she wasn't very keen into going to this uh, meeting with another uh, client or customer or whatever. And the impression that I got was that um, the pimp was trying to persuade or manipulate her into, into actually going and doing this, this job. I'm not too sure if he was able to force her to actually do it, but the sense that I got was that he was trying to make it easier for her to accept the meeting and the job, let's put it that way, into meeting with this with this with this old man. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that was the impression that I got. For me, I felt like it was very significant from a cinematographic point of view. The the actual beginning where you don't see anyone in front of you, you hear dialogue and hear people talking very clearly actually. And there's there's nobody in front of the camera. There's this uh muddied this blurred sort of crowd inside the bar and there's people talking. I, I felt like that was very Kiarosami-esque f- 
for the lack of a better word, the fact that you were presented into this scene without introduction, without actually being clear about who was talking, uh, what mm. exactly are they talking about, why are they having a, a conversation, where it actually is, where is the where this is going, and only later on do we see the do we see Akiko's friend coming into the frame. She's like exchanging chairs with the with the pimp and uh, they're they're moving around. Akiko is moving to the bathroom to <laughs> to tell the the number of tiles that there's in there. And at the same time, we listen to this uh, classical device of Kiarostami, which is you're we're listening to the conversation, but there's there's a lot of noise going on. There's doors being opened and closed. There's people coming in and out. There's steps and music and everything else and uh, it's just like you, you've been inserted into these um, moments in time and space uh, suddenly and you're you're confronted with uh, with this with this story which i thought it was very 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 alluring in in a sense very typical of, of kerastami but at least concerning the 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 pimp and his conversation with akiko that that was the the interpretation that i that I had, but I'm, I might be wrong, like I said. Mm, okay. All right, final thoughts before we uh, wrap up over to quickies. Uh, well, this has been on my mind, this movie, for quite a while now. Seen it twice and thoroughly enjoyed it, and I cannot completely intellectualize it why I do like it so much. And in all of these Kiarostami films, there is this not only voyeurism sense, but you kind of feel like the passenger that you are part of the car or you're just standing somewhere and watching this from one angle and, oh, where did he go? And you can see small glimpses. Like it, This happens a lot in his, uh, was it in the, yeah, in the, through the olive trees. You can barely see what's happening in the ending, but, you know, you get the point and the interpretation is quite free. So, yeah, I like that. It helps that you are not taken out of the movie as well like maybe there's the shots how they're positioned they feel more natural yeah i thoroughly enjoyed the film as well uh, i think in cinematographic terms the, the the film is beautifully photographed there's plenty of great beautiful shots and there's the there are the long takes that are so typical of Kiarostami. i mean the long takes that really put you within the the scene the action that is occurring in in real time and um, the story itself it deals with with the themes that like i said are universal i mean you can you can easily relate with um with the, the feelings of love of 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 jealousy and the the immensely troubling relationships between two people that uh, love each other or or are like or like someone in love, they appear to be in love, but they're, it's it's a very embarrassing and complex. Um, at the same time, the 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 relationships between Asian culture and uh, Western culture, you see that particularly when they're discussing the painting at the old man's uh, at the grandfather's home. That that's a, that painting that it's supposed to be groundbreaking in Japanese art because it was the first time it was that they had the subjects represented in a Western style. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a very, very well composed, very sober and 
very sober film, uh, a work of a mature artist, uh, let's say. And mm-hmm. I was definitely startled by the end of the film. I was <laughs> not expecting that from a Chiara Stami work, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I think uh, it's a pretty good film. Somebody sure. said that um, when Chiara Stami has made a jump scare, everything is possible. <laughs> watch out that's very aptly put yeah for sure <laughs> all right well let's move over to quickies uh i'll give the quickie and then i'll sort of call through everybody um special mention for an actor i'm gonna have to give that to the lead in taste of cherry uh rashadi uh henrik well, I'm actually with you, Zach. It's from my end. It's also to to Ershari for playing Mister Paddy in the Taste of Cherry. Mm. And Pedro. Yeah, uh, I would have to agree. I I've picked the the. I would have to pick the same person. Uh, Omar Yunir Shadi has has uh, taken me by 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 surprise. I think his performance was so so human. So so th- sympathetic and the way that he exposed himself especially considering he was a non-professional actor i think he did an amazing job and the way that he came across uh, the character with his thoughts and emotion I, I i i really i was really impressed by it so definitely yeah mr buddy yeah i think i'm gonna go with the uh, tadashi okuno as takashi watanabe in like someone in love grandfather the grandfather also yeah. very nice yeah, I think he was not. I yeah, just to note, I think he was also in some super minor roles, and he would not have ex- accepted the full, kind of a leading role that he has there. But you know, Kiarostami was saying that he's gonna have some small role there, and then it turned he out to be kind of tricked him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he tricked him for sure. <laughs> Bait and switch. Yeah, uh, a smaller film role that you thought was worthy of highlighting could be an extra. Someone who's on screen for half a second, or someone whose performance was either great or horrible or fun or odd. Um, I'm going to go to the, our first film. Where's the friend's house or where's the friend's home? Uh, the little boy who plays Mohammed Reza. Uh, in that opening scene, he is bawling his eyes out um, mm. in such a real way. I mean, that just I, I could only read that as oh no, he's really crying. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was he was actually crying. Yeah, he was actually crying, and I can tell you why. Yeah. Because Kiarostami had ripped up a, a, a Polaroid picture that he quite liked it. Oh, he did Christ. that in order to, <laughs> in order to get those actual tears uh, from him. Oof. Yeah, was, uh, yeah. I, I've heard that Abbas Kiarostami might not have been the nicest guy or director to be around. His his methods might might have been really. You know, forceful sometimes. Kari. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll just give it to Dio Kaseas Noriaki, the, the fiancé of, like, someone in love. Like, he mm-hmm. really portrayed well the, the nervousness and the anxiety of the character, and I bought, I bought it. It was fun to watch. Henrik. I'm drawing a blank on my end. It's all right. Pedro. Yeah, um, there were two characters that that str- two secondary characters of sorts that struck me. Uh, the 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 grandmother in uh, like someone in love, but I I would have to pick the garbage collector that I was talking earlier in Taste of Cherry, 
the way that uh, Mr. Badi and him developed their conversation, you can see that he's someone that was put into a situation where he talks about uh, being from uh, from the country and having traveled to the city just to make ends meet and try to make some money for his family back home. And you can hear the children uh, making fun of him uh, in a way. And uh, even Mr. Badi tells him, do not worry about that. Uh, don't worry about it. Because he's just a, an ordinary man that is trying to, to make ends meet. And I, I felt a strong empathy towards him because uh, he seemed like a very candid, very human character of someone that has been thrown into the city life just to be able to provide something for the people that he cares uh, and just to be able to survive. Uh, it's a very small role, but it, it struck me. Uh, yeah. Oh, can I have a third one? Kaneko Kubota asked the Akiko's grandmother. So sweet. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. I was, uh, I was sitting on the fence between those two, but uh, certainly, yeah. Mm. In one adjective, how would you describe these films? I'm going to go with realistic. Kari? Hmm, definitely at least thought-provoking. Hmm, Henrik? Uh, my adjective for the night is lingering. Th these are hmm. films that, that linger. Is it a negative Some may take it as... Hmm? Is it in a negative sense or no sense? Well, I, I can give you a hint. The negative version <laughs> of, of, of this exact same adjective would be Boring or slow. Mm. Uh, Pedro. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not too sure. I, I, perhaps, wistful. I'm not sure if that's the correct word. I, I was trying to to find a word that would describe the feeling that I got from the three films. I, I had this melancholic, somber feeling from the three films. Um, at least from some of the actions that transcurred that occurred in the three films and i felt like they they pulled something from within me that was uh that was uh, melancholic so yeah wistful i guess i love both of those wistful and melancholic those are great uh favorite quote uh, i'm gonna go with eggs are bad for me <laughs> got me <laughs> Who could ever win XR bad for me in this three? <laughs> <laughs> Henrik. I on my head, I don't have a favorite quote. Alright. Pedro. Yeah, so the taxidermist has a, a a pretty amazing monologue in Taste of Cherry, and one of the sentences that struck me was uh, the world isn't the way you see it. The way that he was trying to get into uh, Mr. Body's head, um, it kind of resonated with me because it's uh, it's psychological and philosophical in a way that there's a very strong philosophical tradition in, in Sufism and in Buddhism and in Taoism that tells us of how the way that we perceive things isn't exactly how things are and how these can change um, our our. our our way of looking at the world, our, our own personality, I felt like it was uh, a very strong uh, phrase. Uh, it has stuck with me along with many other uh, sentences from the taxidermist and from the other two films, but that was uh, the one that I would have to pick. Nice. 
Uh, these next three will be yes or no's real quick. Would you consider watching these films again? I'm going to say yes. Yes. Kari. Henrik. Not anytime soon. And this is something I, I can't give you give you just a quick yes or no. <laughs> give it to me. Uh, in, in my one adjective, I, I use the word lingering. And I, I use that in, in positive sense. And a, as much as I, I do appreciate the, the, the feeling, the fact that these films take time and they, they linger in the moment, the unfortunate downside is that this also can work as a as a bloody insomnia cure. <laughs> These can also be absolute snooze fest fests to to watch. And even though that's not a problem for me, like I'm I'm not I'm not trying to shame these movies. That that's not not what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, as as far much as as the lingering effect is nice it uh, for me personally it also makes these to be films that i won't be revisiting that quickly and the ones that i most likely will will do would be the taste of cherry and and someone in love i kind of feel that uh, where's the friend's house is is something that most likely I won't be revisiting. Hmm, maybe should be noted as well how how it might be really important to have some moments in movies in general in in real time because it gives the audience maybe a more kind of realistic breathing space to to think and just reflect, kind of like you're in a, you're in a car. You know, you go to this meditative state and you keep it there for a long time. Oh, yeah. And- and to continue from from your point, that is actually something that that is is good to re- recognize, and something that is important when you want to differentiate. You know, be be being quotation marks slow and therefore realistic, and simply you know doing a one shot film, because we are now seeing seeing kind of a a search, or not really a search, but we are getting movies that are more or less done with, with on one take, or at least want to give you the, the sense that this is this the entire film has been done with a one take, and what we are ge- getting from here is is war movies like was it nineteen seventeen? Yeah, Sam Mendes loves it. Yeah, and and mm-hmm. crime thrillers like Victoria, and in in both of those cases, there might be just too much happening in the film for that actually being realistic, despite the fact that it's done with one take. And on the opposite end of that, we we have something like Kiarostami, who obviously hasn't done his movies with one take. There's a lot of editing and a lot of shots in these. But at the same time, like you said, it Kari, it, it is kind of it's taking its time and it's making it realistic. Mm. I would rewatch the the films, and uh, I think they have plenty of uh, of um, interpretation or subtext that is able to to compensate for several viewings. Uh, just to give you an example, I've seen Taste of Cherry and Where Is the Friend's Home. Um, 
two or three times already. And um, for example, in Taste of Cherry, there was this shot that I, you know, it stuck in my head uh, last time I saw it. Uh, the first time I wasn't too sure what it was about when uh, Mr. Body is driving and he comes across these, um, these pipes, these tubes, very, very long and huge. Uh, they're going underneath the earth. And only afterwards, I thought, OK, maybe there's something to it because uh, it's a shot that that occurs like two or three times and first time i watched it i wasn't too sure why are we seeing these pipes uh but uh, after i watched the second and third time i thought okay maybe he's looking at it and thinking about how these pipes are going beneath the earth to get water or sewage or something somewhere and he's thinking about how he he wishes he was under the earth as well. This is just an example, uh, just to say that, uh, yeah, definitely these films have something going on that you don't necessarily pick up on the first uh, sight, on the first view, and therefore you can always get something additional from, from, from other viewings. Okay. Do you think these films will have any staying power or legacy? I'm gonna say yeah. Cardi. Oh, well, Taste of Cherry, of course, has gotten so much attention that it's going to have some kind of legacy. The director in general, not sure how many people are going to find like someone in love. But yep, Taste of Cherry, Where's the Friend's House was kind of what brought Kiara's Tommy to the Western Eye. So those two for sure. Hendrik. Yeah, yeah. This will and Kiarostami as a director will have a legacy. I don't believe that Kiarostami ever will be like like a mainstream name, but he will have a legacy and he will be something that will be circulating for the film buff circles. No doubt about that. Pedro. Concerning its lasting power, I would have to agree with Hendrik. I think... Um... Kiaros Tami, I I'm almost absolutely sure he would never, he will never be a a mainstream director. Uh, somebody talked and discussed as much as um, I don't know Tarkovsky, for example, as he is today. But uh, he's a director that has put out uh, a corpus. A he has a filmography that is very honorable, very dignified, and respectable, and so. Of great quality that is bound to last for me at least he's one of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century he's one of the greatest filmmakers in the seventh art in cinema i i'm very fond of him so definitely i think his films and particularly these three particularly taste of cherry uh has everlasting uh power let's put it that way wow all right would you recommend these films uh, that's a, a no doubt for me. Hell yeah. Kari? Yes, all of them. Henrik? Uh, I give this half recommendation. And that's that sounds much more mean than it's meant to be. Like, Let me state it out. Kierostami is not a bad director. And these are not bad films. But what, they, what these are, these are very divisive films. And... Like I said in in the beginning, this is these three movies were were kind of the exception to the rule. Well, I actually went and and looked at the the user reviews in on, on movie 
And like I already stated, I don't side with the notion that that those reviews give give you, and I don't side with exactly like like the the hostility that Ebert had in in his review, but I can understand where that those sentiments come from, and I can very much like accept the fact that. That is how Ebert or or some of the users on Mubi felt about these films, and it's like these are very much movies where where it comes down to the question: Are these for you, or do these films work for you? And there is no universal answer to to give. It's very much a personal personal question, and because of that, like because of the divisive nature that these movies have. I can't recommend them openly to everybody. So because of that, it's it's a half recommendation. And if you are looking for a starting point from these three movies, I would recommend that you start with Taste of Cherry. Yeah, of course, it's a quite a jump if you're going to come from like Hollywood blockbusters, having watched mainly <laughs> something like Bruce Willis and Armageddon and then jump into stuff like this. It's <laughs> it's so on a different level that it it's it, a leap of faith. <laughs> I, I, I would say that I, I would say that this is also something that uh, will be subjective even to the the international art film art house film crowd. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I share exactly the same opinion as as Hendrik. Um, you know, in a sense, I would like to say that, yes, definitely, I would recommend these films, but um, I would not recommend these films to everyone. I know that there are people that perhaps aren't, wouldn't be into or wouldn't be able to cherish the film without having, um, perhaps without having watched some other films or perhaps without some certain expectations. Uh, I, for example, I know I have uh friends and family members that are i i love them very much and i think they're amazing people and intelligent clever people very sensible but i i know for sure that they wouldn't like uh kiarasami's movies uh i wouldn't recommend them mm. i wouldn't recommend the movies to them but uh like i said on the other hand uh, i think these movies are absolutely beautiful are are, are something very special within world cinema and uh, ideally, I would I would like that everyone would have the chance to watch uh, at least one of Kiarasami's movies and to to understand what he's trying to say through his work uh, to to understand his 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 thoughts his ideas. But uh, it's purely subjective, and I know that a lot of people that I respect and love wouldn't necessarily like the movie the way that I that I love it. So yeah, it's a half recommendation, like Hendrik said. Yeah. Uh, put these films in order of preference. Uh, I. <laughs> this is maybe different than what probably what you guys are gonna do, but I I'm actually gonna go in the order in which we watched them. Uh, for me, it was Where's the Friend's Home, Taste of Cherry, and then like Someone in Love. Kari. 
Well, exactly the other way around. Like someone in love, taste of cherry, and where's the friend's house? <laughs> hey, you know what? We both agree that taste of cherry is second, so that's something. That's something. <laughs> Enric. Uh, I'm going to go with Carly Solan up. So also someone you love, the taste of cherry, and where's the friend's house? <laughs> that's the, one of the rare times when we agree, Henrik. <laughs> There are, there are, there are far and few between those moments. They're almost a stuff of legends. <laughs> Pedro. Yeah, for me, I would put uh, uh, Taste of Cherry first place. Then I'm not too sure, but uh, perhaps I'll put it where is a friend's home second place. And uh, like someone in love, um, this does not mean that I like or that I enjoyed Where is a Friend's Home that much more than um, like someone in love. It just means that I liked it a little bit more, but I liked the three of them quite a lot. I I think they're very, very good films, the three of them. Uh, the Taste of Cherry for me has a, a, spe- a special place, but the other two, I think there are amazing films that are that deserve to be viewed and rewatched and discussed like we did during this past uh, almost three hours, I guess. I don't know how long we've been going on. but uh, Almost three hours. Yeah, almost three hours. Yeah, okay. I'll agree with you. I, I, I like all of them. And that order of preference, I mean, it, there's a lot of nuance in between each one. It's uh, None of them are by and, by and far ahead or behind the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, complete the sentence. You really know... You're watching an Abbas Kiristami film when, and I would say it's when you think you're watching a film that was adapted from a play because there's lots of long scenes of people sitting around talking and it feels very play-like. Gary. Uh, when you jump into a painting and you're kind of a, Passive participant voyeur on the journey. Henry. When you start to question if this car ride in awkward silence is movie or real life. <laughs> Pedro. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the same. I, I was going to say when you're not too sure if you're watching reality and or fiction, uh, when you feel like you're understanding of the conventional rules of filmmaking are being undermined, subtly undermined. Uh, You know, when you have the distinct feeling that silence bears the same importance as uh, as dialogue or as uh, naturalistic sounds, I guess. Mm. All right. Anything else anyone wants to add before we close the lab? I would just like to thank you guys for inviting me to to this podcast. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. It's always great to yeah. talk with uh, people that share the same passion for filmmaking as I do. Uh, I found this conversation to be very, well, almost exhilarating. Uh, it's not often that I have the chance to talk so in-depth about films with other people. So... Th- Thank you, thank you. Thank you. You came to the right place. If (laughs) (laughs) if you want to talk about films in depth, you came to the right place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, listeners, what did you all think? Please uh, uh, hit us up on our social media. 
You can find us on Facebook at the Flick Lab Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Flick Lab or our website, theflicklab.com. You can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, which is completely free to do, and it really helps others like yourself find us. Uh, we've also got a Patreon started. You can head over to patreon.com slash theflicklab and support us over there. Big shout out, monumentous shout out, historical moment, our first patron <laughs> has signed up. And that is Heli Sandstrom. Big yeah. shout out. Thank you so, so much for being the very first patron of the Flick Congrats. Lab podcast. Thank you. Congrats. We, we History being made. History made. <laughs> Hopefully the first of many. Hopefully. 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 So, well, lots of great content and opportunities over on Patreon, so check that out. Uh, I'm Zach. You can follow me on Twitter at Zachary forty Zachary Pen 48 or I just started a link tree because that's a thing that people are doing nowadays. So find me over on Linktree. Kari. Yeah, well, apparently they can find me whenever I manage to open Twitter at Kari Oyala. And Henrik, where can people find you? Yeah, there's actually no reason to find me because I'm already in your car. <laughs> <laughs> and Pedro, where can we find you and where can we find your work? And uh, give, give us a full plug for yourself. Sure, uh, people should be able to find me on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Plan Sequence. It's the French term for the sequence shot. I put out some video essays concerning uh, filmmaking from all parts of the world, from all eras. And um, yeah, if you're interested in filmmaking from, from, different, from different places, different countries, different ages, and uh, you're interested in learning more about the the art of filmmaking, make sure to give a look at it. It's Plan Sequence at YouTube. It's really good stuff. I highly recommend it. Uh, our theme music today was created by Nick Ravel. The episode was edited by our very own Gary Oyala. Unfortunately. So yeah, once again, thanks so much. Uh, much Such a rich discussion and long time running English language for us foreigners. So one of my favorite sessions in this uh, podcast uh, ever, for sure. So welcome back anytime, Pedro. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, guys. It was really nice. And I just want to close with this, because when Kiarostami was asked if he learned about some common denominator between all the cultures he worked with in his life, whether in Arabic or Japanese or English, French, Italian... I think also Spanish, he said, I wasn't searching for a common denominator. I started wondering about the challenge of working in other cultures. What I reached was suddenly acknowledgement of the universal aspect of filmmaking. Not that I ever felt the necessity of proving that all human beings suffer the same way, feel joy the same way, but it happened on my way when I get close to these people. Just by the simple intervention of translation, I can actually reach them and ask them something, and their reaction is as I expected. I see that the relationship goes so smoothly, and I realize that cultural languages and specificities are nothing but simple obstacles that you can easily overcome. It's obvious that human beings are the same wherever they are, end quote. And this, my friends, is why I love trying to cross the cultural boundaries in this podcast. Talk to you guys from all over the world and talk to Petro Plansik once, to Zach and even my cryptic friend Henrik over here. So this is why we are here. This is why we are here today.
Thank you for joining us. See you in a fortnight. Oh, I'll give it then. Later. See ya. Bye.